Lingua Britannica is a podcast that uses ethnographic interviews to study language use in the extreme metal community. We are studying a music scene known for its love of themes and topics generally considered offensive, and it is likely that some episodes will touch on topics or opinions some listeners may find tasteless or ethically problematic. Ethnographic researchers aim to adopt the interviewee's point of view so that we can draw out and study the attitudes, beliefs, and practices that are important to them. We want to make it clear that in presenting these conversations here, we do not endorse any of their content. Our aim is to explore the thought processes behind language use in this long-running international and yet understudied scene. Hey everyone, welcome back to Lingua Brutalica with me, Jess Benny Smith, and my co-host, Wes Robertson. Hello. Uh, today we're expanding our repertoire of multilingual artist interviews by speaking to vocalist and lyricist Karina Utomo about her English medium lyrics for high tension and her Indonesian and old Javanese lyrics for Rinuat. Uh, thanks for being with us today, Karina. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you, Jess. Thanks so much for having me and Wes. Lovely to have you here. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, uh, I suppose starting off as we always do, uh, would you mind just giving us an introduction into um, the music for uh, High Tension and Renoir? Uh, yes, uh, so I'm just speaking on um, from Wurundjeri country. I just want to acknowledge quickly uh, that um, I work and live on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Woiwurrung and uh, Bunurung uh, speaking uh, clans of the Kulin Nation, and I just would like to acknowledge uh, their connection to land, to culture, to language, and that sovereignty, sovereignty um, has never been ceded. Yeah, my name is Karina, and I um, have been an extreme metal vocalist for, you know, since uh-huh. 2000 and maybe the past 10 years, I've been really working on um, extreme metal vocals, but also um, in the past few years uh, going into more experimental realms. Um, I have a couple of projects, um, High Tension, uh, which is, I guess, you know, like a a metal um, project with, in the beginning, you know, was informed very much by punk and hardcore. Uh, And then, but our latest album, Purge, I guess is more in the, you know, extreme metal territory and uh, this year I've begun two new projects called Rinuat and that uh, project explores gamelan notation, um, Bahasakawi which is um, ancient Javanese language and Bahasa Indonesia and that was a particularly exciting uh, album to work on with uh, my collaborators, Mike Desalons, who is also in High Tension um, and produced the High Tension album also Rinuat, and Rama Parwata, who is a uh, drummer, percussionist. He plays uh, in a lot of bands. Uh, The most sort of established and well-known one is probably White Horse, which is a doom band. And uh, another project that I started with Rama uh, is called Kilat. And that's uh, 
a black metal project with uh, Ben Andrews, who is in my disco and Agents of Abhorrence, um, really incredible grindcore band with one of my favourite drummers in Australia, um, Max Cohane. Awesome. That's an extremely wide range of, of genres there that, that your music covers. Uh, have you always had kind of that eclectic taste or how did you get into metal? What was sort of your entry point and how did it expand into, uh, you know, wanting to be involved in so many different types? Um, yes, I'm very greedy with uh, <laughs> my participation in metal. Um, so I guess um, I, I got into what would be the gate? The gateway would be hardcore, I guess. I think for maybe a lot of um, metal fans, um, you know, you discover a genre of music that's heavy and then I guess you can go on that trajectory of wanting to explore more extreme um, levels of abrasion and distortion. So I definitely went down that path as opposed to... Um, you know, going um, in terms of being a performer as well, uh, going softer over the years. I definitely wanted, um, especially in terms of um, uh, voice experimentation and performance, I think there's still more that I'm yet to learn to be able to um, achieve with my voice. Uh, and I guess, I don't know, I guess I've just always been a really curious uh curious metal fan, uh, but I definitely have always been, I've always loved black metal and, um, you know, when I first discovered the genre, um, maybe, I don't know, like 15 years ago or 10 years ago or however long. And, but before then, yeah, I guess I was listening to a lot of heavy kind of blackened hardcore or just heavy stuff in general. Um, but it was really kind of like in terms of um, I was invited to be a soloist for um, an opera by an incredible uh, composer whose name is Pat Hope. And prior to um, performing and uh, in the opera as a, as a, you know, as an extreme metal singer alongside opera singers and other experimental singers uh, that really opened up my um, I think it really opened up a lot of possibilities I think in terms of um, the, the you know the parameters of of um, metal and experimental music and the methods in um, I guess writing for those genres so that was a, um, and yeah, being invited to do Make It Up Club, which is this long running um, avant-garde improvisation night that has been going, I think next year in January will be the 24th anniversary. So, and there's a real um, intersection there with a lot of extreme metal performers like black metal and grindcore uh, you know, that will be, you know, curated alongside experimental artists. So, mm. yeah, that was, um, that was, that, that was a really kind of, um, what would be the word? Yeah, it was an inspiring kind of, um, I, had, I felt like a, it gave me a lot of revelations about um, expression and um, methods around performance. 
Are there any particular artists within, you know, various uh, subgenres of extreme metal or hardcore that you consider to be particularly influential um, in shaping your own kind of extreme metal identity and um, music within the scene? I'm a really big fan of um, Oransi Pazuzu, and I think that they are very refined and, you know, um, pioneering in 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 the way that they approach that genre. Uh, so they're a band from Finland. Um, and bands like Terra Tenebrosa as well. Uh, and Senyawa, of course, um, they they wouldn't consider themselves a metal band, but they I would say that they definitely belong in they would, you know, they, they would appeal to uh, metal and extreme music fans and experimental fans as well. Um, and they've also collaborated with Stephen O'Malley from Sun, um, which, which was, you know, so yeah, there's a lot of like metal um, people that are frothing over, um, <laughs> uh, you know, which is, which is so incredible because I do, I do see Sinyawa as a band that transcends the, you know, genres, but they, you know, they're so prodigious in their craft that they've basically created this celestial entity of their own. So it did, you know, I think that, um, I think definitely, um, though, yeah, those three, three bands, I, I would say big fan, big, big fan. <laughs> I guess speaking of kind of this general celestial entity and, and transcending the boundaries you mentioned, do you think there is a way to kind of define metal? Does it have uh, kind of boundaries that can be delineated? And, and if so, uh, how do we do that? I think that because metal is so vast and there's so many pockets hyper niche pockets that exist in this like metal heavy terrain. I think it's up to the participants um, to decide how they want to define metal, like what is metal to them. So I think that, I don't know, I, I think that it is one of those things that I don't, I don't want to read someone else's definition of what is, you know, I don't, I wouldn't want to, you know, go to a Wikipedia page and have these set of rules of like, what is metal? What isn't metal? And I also think that it's a really kind of reductive and almost frustrating aspect of metal as a genre when if someone feels that they can tell you what is and what isn't metal. <laughs> I feel like it's it's such a it's such a personal um for me, um, personally, it's, yeah, I, I feel that it's such a personal connection that, it, you know, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I, I would, um, it's, it's, it is one of those things that, that cannot be defined. It can't be easily illuminated. It is such a, it is such a personal um, thing. If there is no like generic definition that you can kind of latch on to, I mean, do you have your own personal definition of what metal means to you? I don't think it could be defined by words, but 
you know, it is a, like a sonic experience or, um, and sometimes it's, it's uh, you know, maybe sonically doesn't fit in the sort of the style or the aesthetics of metal, but it's still heavy. And um, yeah, it's, it's this kind of like really nuanced spectrum, I guess. So yes, can you tell I don't want to... <laughs> Yeah. No, it's fair I enough. Wanna, <laughs> I want to set the. I, I don't want to set the boundaries here. Mm. And I think it is. I think that's that's one of the most exciting things of the genre is that, you know, as soon as you realise that there shouldn't be these parameters, um, and this sort of like need to belong, um, you know, within the confines of metal, it's it's actually so liberating to just then be able to enjoy it. Yeah. What about within uh, the, just the topic of language? Is there metal approaches to language? Is there lyrics that just aren't metal in your opinion? Or is that also quite um, vague? I would, I, would, I would definitely describe, I, I definitely wouldn't define that either. Because I think it's, you know, A few things. So um, when it's delivered in the sort of abrasive, um, distorted styles of metal vocals, I think that that adds to the abstraction and fits into the aesthetics of, you know, I guess that um, metal kind of sound. Um, so often the lyrical component is so... Is, is, is already an abstraction anyway that it almost, um, you know, it's, it's sort of like a second thing. If you, if you did, you would connect with it, but not necessarily perhaps, you know, perhaps your ear can't, you know, sometimes after certain singers you can decipher even if they're delivering it in, um, you know, the, the harsh um, voice, you can still decipher what they're saying. But you know, I, I feel like that understanding comes after the initial connection um, to that expression. So, yeah, I guess uh, I would say I, I feel like that's a, 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 like a homework thing as a listener. Mm -hmm. If you were, if you really wanted to know and engage further and, you know, understand explicitly um the lyrical contents of that song you you would you would go and do that but i yeah i think that's yeah yeah a, sec I mean a, se a secondary um aspect of connecting to mm. to something right yeah i mean that's certainly a comment that we've heard before um people mm. saying that like the vocals are more of like a percussive instrument primarily and then you know the lyrics are kind of like a secondary resource that people can go to as you say like if they're interested in doing that you know extra homework right um but if they were to do that homework i mean do you think that you have a sense of like what makes for like good lyrics it'd be satisfying to read if you were to you know go that extra mile and do that work i think i'm more interested in you know um lyrical craft that sits outside the sort of quintessential um, metal lyrics approach. Um, because, yeah, 
I, I think I think it's hard. I think it can be difficult to be pioneering in your lyrical content because it's sort of like I think a lot of a lot of metal is so is still bound to to those parameters of like this is a death metal band, this is a gore, you know, this is a gore grind band, and this is a black metal band. So there's, you know, particular aspects that I guess um, participants are still kind of honoring for those particular genres. Um, but that's not to say that I don't enjoy it because, um, you know, even doing the black metal project is such a different method to, um, so Kill at the Black Metal Project, such a different method to Rinuat that um, there's so much, uh, you know, it, it's, there's still so much appeal in, in both methods, whether you have a tighter parameter or not. Um, yeah. <laughs> so would you broadly say like that when you're writing your own lyrics, you don't really draw on a specific kind of tradition or someone has inspired you? Do you, where, where do you get kind of your inspiration from in, in the way that you craft and shape uh, lyrics when you're writing? So for, for me, um, it, it really depends on, 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 on the, on the song, on the album, but I think the initial kind of method is the essence, like the essence of the spirit of the song or the atmosphere of the song that should be carried through. And because of my way of, en of engaging with, with metal is um, the execution of voice and, you know, the, the way that the voice is composed is important so I almost work backwards from there but often um, you know the lyrical content will just show itself um, in that process so that that's often how I work and or if um, for the sake of uh, mapping out um, so particular tones, particular words will get you to achieve a more sort of brutal or deeper tone. And I feel like that's essential to the composition process. So sometimes I'll have, um, you know, particular words that will fit the spirit of the vocal execution. And so, you know, I guess it, it's that puzzle and it is a lot of kind of like, you know, you have this kind of overarching goal. You you know what what um, kind of message or spirit you're you're sort of trying to execute in a particular song, and then the the lyrical components will just have to you know, yeah, they just show themselves, I guess. So, when did you first start writing lyrics? When I was when I was like. In primary school, probably. Oh, right. <laughs> very early. <laughs> there weren't metal lyrics at that time, were there? Um, sorry. But they weren't metal lyrics at that time. It wasn't like you weren't writing black metal uh, lyrics in elementary I, school. I wasn't writing black metal lyrics, but I was writing. Um, I was just writing. Um, you know, poetry and uh, journal entries and things like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, how would you describe your lyric writing process? How has it changed since uh, those early days to now? <laughs> I think in the early days, um, because I, you know, I didn't learn guitar until I was 14. 
and um, you know the way I learned piano was also um, not for songwriting but you know to be a classical pianist um, I didn't last very long because <laughs> um, and I guess yeah so I guess it's different because you're writing uh, yeah the, the the writing process is completely different and in fact I probably should be writing a lot more um, than than I am um, at, at the moment a lot of my writing practice is after um, you know after I've after the music or, or in the process happens simultaneously in the process of music making as well and what does that process actually involve so like I assume do you write the song first and then got kind of a bit of a structure to work with and then kind of generate ideas about concepts or yeah what's the kind of step by step of it uh, so uh, in general, I mean, it's different for each aspect, but um, in general, uh, it's, it's, it's mapping it out and having, you know, this overarching goal. And then it's a bit of like, yeah, cut and paste puzzle, uh, experimenting with the ideas until, uh, you know, the first idea or the second idea isn't always the best. Um, so yeah and and you know like I used to I used to be really sort of um I used to put a lot of pressure on myself to always come up with something that was great straight away um but over the year you know over the years I've learned that um writing and uh you know working on your voice is like any other practice you just need to practice it <laughs> you just need to keep doing it and um, I think you just need to be prepared that um, sometimes you can fail in that process or your ideas are just shit. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you mentioned cutting. Um, have you ever cut anything because you didn't feel it felt metal? Again, uh, keeping that very, very vague, but just personally, you thought, oh, this, this doesn't really work in kind of a metal context for me? Um, I don't think so. I do, like, you know, in high tension, um, I was very, even from, you know, especially the earlier albums, I was a pretty, you know, my old um, Ash, uh, Ash Pegram, who I've collaborated with, you know, since I was a teenager and was, uh, wrote the first two high tension albums, can attest that I was a pretty brutal um, <laughs> collaborator to work with because I would just say, no, nah, it's not brutal enough. Um, what else have you got? Um, and, you know, in retrospect, like, I mean, I, I, I felt that I could be honest with him. Um, but, you know, yeah, that was, that was, I, yeah, that was a bit hard to have someone in your band. <laughs> Not be very supportive of your ideas. Uh, so, um, but I think, I think even back then I, I had already like, you know, I have a very particular taste of, of, of um especially if we're writing um from you know guitarists as a starting point um and i mean we don't always write from guitarists as a starting point but maybe like it's you know seven percent of the songs or whatever so yeah so i i guess that was important for me because that is what i'm working with so i need it I would like it to be a particular way or I have something envisioned. And 
you know, I'm not so great at playing guitar, but somehow I've managed to be in bands for the last, you know, 15 years just by um, basically singing my guitar riff ideas. <laughs> so I don't know. It's an awesome skill. <laughs> I, it, it, it's, you know, sometimes you feel like, oh, man, I'm being such a, you know, backseat driver kind of thing. But thankfully for me, my collaborators, um, you know, understand and support <laughs> support that. Are there any kind of criteria that you use to decide, like, what's going to be cut, what's going to make for, you know, like the final version of the lyrics? Yeah, I think when you when you kind of, like, have thrown everything at a song and all the fa- all the all the aspects are com- complete so to say and it's it, if it doesn't have a particular energy um which we have done before in the last high tension album we like completed a full song and everyone was like um don't feel that this one belongs here even though we had included it in our like live set a number of times so I think I think that's a real luxury to be able to um get to that point where you know you've got you're not just trying to meet the like you know 30 40 minutes um duration of an album um but you can you know start to emit emit things to make things feel more cohesive or just sort of more balanced in the scheme of a, you know, a, a body of work. So um, speaking broadly, there's been a lot of research to date uh, that has argued that metal artists often take kind of a distance from their lyrics and like singing about, you know, blood, guts and murder, but they don't actually want to commit, you know, blood, guts and murder. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've actually had a number of artists we've talked to kind of disagree with that point. Uh, where do you kind of stand in this? Do you feel that your lyrics are kind of disassociative or do you believe they, do you design them to kind of be a more personal um something you know something with I guess what you would call a quote-unquote message it really depends on the song because the the beauty of 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 making music is that there's endless possibilities there's so many um you know characters you can embody there's you know maybe you're trying to honor a particular um spirit or feeling so you know you have this you know, you have this portal to basically enter the realm and be, you know, exercise those ideas, like express yourself in in that way, because there's no, it almost feels like exciting, particularly in metal, because, um, you know, for, and I'm just speaking on behalf, like not on behalf of anyone, but I'm imagining that, you know, for a lot of um, artists that love gore, um it's almost like this you know um sphere where you can express yourself with no consequences so I think it you know I think metal serves that purpose I guess to um yeah for that kind of dark expression I guess but um yeah I I I wouldn't um yeah and I guess I guess for myself it 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 depends on how the um you know it depends on my response to the to the to the like 
the resonance of, of, of that particular track or, um, you know, and some, a thing that I've, um, a method that really works for me is, you know, seeing like sonic landscapes as sort of activating the mind's eye. So you can almost like envision how a song looks like, or you can, you can sense the like, how that terrain looks and what what might be happening in that particular um, world, I guess. And um, yeah, just kind of taking steps into it. So we did, of course, want to talk more specifically about your lyrics. Um, I think we'll start with uh, your work with High Tension, if that's all right. Uh, so your earlier album, Bully, um, seems to treat a variety of topics that appear relevant to personal struggles, like self and depression, in the case of songs like Take Control, or pushing through kind of personal um, limitations or restrictions, uh, like in the title track, Bully, uh, which, as you said in previous interviews I read, uh, represents your experience of facing your fears of not being taken seriously as a woman in hardcore and metal. Um, what I found interesting kind of reading through these lyrics was that many of the songs seem to end with a sense of overcoming the difficulties. So like in Take Control, uh, after listing all of these fears and anxieties, like uh, in the lines, um, I don't know what success feels like, I can't relate to anyone, you have lines like, um, you know, take it, take it all, take it back, take it slow, that seem to offer kind of a pathway to overcoming that like self-loathing and anxiety. Um, and this isn't something that we often see in metal. Like, you know, certainly we see a lot of uh, metal lyrics discussing themes of like self-loathing and depression, but we don't necessarily see that kind of positive uh, expression towards the end. So why did you decide to explore these personal challenges and why was it kind of important for you to talk about overcoming them? I think, I think there's a strong correlation with using your voice and, um, yeah, uh, overcoming things that feel confronting, whether that's within yourself or um, otherwise. And I think, I think that it's important, you know, like I, I use um, music and songwriting as this sort of, um, as this vessel to, to muster that energy to um, push through or, uh, you know, as, or just as a tool really to, um, reconcile uh and kind of put everything out you know I think I think it's a I think it's a really useful process and um and I yeah I think I think doing it through the medium of music um you know you I guess when you're sort of unraveling complex things there's you know this it can be really overwhelming there's so many nuances there's like you know like it's kind of just a mess so um having the structure of of of, of music and you know crafting um even like vocal patterns and so forth almost kind of helps organize everything <laughs> and I guess you you do want to have uh, well, me personally, you, you want to have a positive outcome um, from it. And that's, that's also like organically what I get out of, um, you know, being a music fan as well. So is there, is there anything like scary or did you find any hesitation on the first times you kind of tried putting this more personal uh, stories into metal in terms of either just like exposing yourself or, or worry that maybe people wouldn't connect Were these like, what, what was it like kind of 
being personal in that way and, and putting your experiences out on the page? I think that, uh, I think the beauty of abrasive and harsh singing is that not everyone can decipher what you're saying, right? Yeah. So I think that for a lot of, maybe maybe not just for myself, but maybe for other singers, it's, it's this really kind of protective abstraction. Mm-hmm. So um, even though I know like people can probably access the lyrics and have a understanding of the raw, I guess, you know, the rawness of like, and this, this is in the context of bully. Um, it's not as, uh, as, as the performer, it's not as confronting to me because I have that um, abstraction of extreme vocals. Mm-hmm. And it's the same for, um, I guess, uh, the, you know, the, the preceding um, album because, but, you know, but for Purge, I guess it, um, it sort of had much more of a purpose. Um, I'm not, you know, like, it feels like so long ago that we, <laughs> that we wrote Bully as well. And, um, you know, like I'm, I'm in my like late thirties now. And um, I guess it's sort of like, it's interesting to see the um, previous albums and sort of they're sort of just markers of time for me. But I think, you know, even when Jess was reading out the thing, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> like, you know, trying to suppress the um, the kind of processes I went through, um, you know, from 15, 10 years ago or whatever. <laughs> It's like when we uh, read things we wrote five years ago, it doesn't feel like <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, you just got to, like, I guess you've just got to own it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being, um, like, 12 and seeing um, my diary from when I was, like, 9 or 10, and I was so repulsed that I literally burnt it and chucked it in the bin. Um <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> and I think I, get you know, it I, can, <laughs> I think a lot of artists can feel that way about about not that I was an artist when I was a child, but you know I think a lot of people can be you know like cringing at themselves. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. life, right? A perpetual series of looking back and cringing. <laughs> yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, but but that's not to say um, you know I feel that way about those albums, but it, it is. Mm. But it is. It, it reminds you of of. Um, I guess, you know, who, who you were or like what you, what, you know, what kind of like things you chose to, uh, to address at the time, I guess. So, um, yeah. Well, what about um, in contrast to the songs that Jess mentioned, you have songs that uh, you've talked about that are a bit more kind of brutal and dark uh, songs like Iceman, Killed by Life, that have lines that reference like uh, destined to dissolve, destined to rot. Uh, and respectively finished with words crumbled and defeated. Uh, are these kind of songs that seem a bit more, I guess, like on face value, at least hopeless, uh, intentionally meant to be juxtaposed by the ones that kind of talk about overcoming uh, difficulties on the same albums? Killed by Life is actually meant to be a really positive album. I mean, positive song. Um, and yeah, hopefully it doesn't come across that way. <laughs> But whenever I, you know, we perf- when we used to perform that song, it had a really positive vibe. And actually the intent of those lyrics were meant to be, um, yeah, 
positive, the opposite. Mm. Mm. Okay. And Iceman, Iceman was quite a, um, you know, like a, a fun one. Um, you know, again, it's like, it's, it's, that was quite a abstract um, method of writing as well. Like literally abstract, not just sung um, with abstraction. Mm. Mm. Is it like positive in the sense that like, I suppose like one way I could read um, Killed by Life is that like positive in the sense of like embracing mortality. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of, you know, the lyrics in Bully is just sort of like, um, you know, it's like meant to humanize the, the process of living, I guess, existing. <laughs> mm. Yeah. That was interesting. Obviously, like, yeah, I think like both readings are very like possible here, maybe in the context of performance, like, you know, it leans more one way than the other. And I certainly saw the humor in Iceman when I read it, <laughs> particularly because it reminded me a little bit of what other um, lyricists we've spoken to have talked about, like uh, regarding the brutality of the mundane, mm. you know, so things yes. like, you know, mm. like affirmations, father figure, typical totems in my wholesome home hobbies on weekends, I think was like, you know, that really came through a little bit for me. Is that what you intended? So actually, um, when I wrote Iceman, so Iceman is reference to the uh, um, Iceman, the hitman, who was who had who had who had murdered a lot of um, yeah, who had murdered a lot of people, and his family just had no idea that that was his uh, mm-hmm. his role. So that was, to be honest, that was just like a really quick, because it was like a really, this Iceman was this sort of fast, grindy sort of song. And um, yeah, it was sort of just like this, you know, envisioning being Iceman. (laughs) What? um, Having to lie to your family and sort Mm. of like um, have this kind of veil of, you know, normalcy. Right. Um, whilst simultaneously, um, you know, having to be so disassociative, like, I don't know, to be a hitman. Um, one of my favourite uh, series is called Barry. Who, yeah. Yeah. So, like, um, that's, you know, written after, like, obviously Barry came out after we wrote Iceman. So, I yeah, I guess that was just, like, a very kind of minuscule, like, interest in, like, you know, kind of like a fleeting moment of interest of like, mm, Iceman, let's mm. let's quickly explore um, this character. Yeah, I mean, one of your more enduring interests, I think, like certainly comes across in some of the songs on Bully as well, which if I'm reading them correctly, um, seem to reference, um, you know, the Indonesian genocide. So for instance, Mass Grave, I don't know if like that's necessarily what you intended, but I think like looking at it from the perspective of like Purge coming straight after, I wondered if there was that, um, kind of connection there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the um, that enduring interest that um, you describe, I guess it's, you know, like it's a constant work in progress. Um, when I first found out about the anti-communist purge, I was already in my 20s and I had, um, I was already in, in I was in, a, in a, another project um, before high tension. So I'd begun um, addressing um, this particular era because for me it was such a profound piece of history that I feel is so um, colorary to 
present day Indonesia. That it was, yeah, it was this kind of like extremely overwhelming, profound piece. And I felt really betrayed by, you know, the Indonesia school curriculum and the, you know, the Saharto government, um, because this was omitted from, uh, you know, um, from the education curriculum and it's not known. And there's still, you know, I, I talk about this a lot, but there's still so much stigma around being affiliated with the Indonesian Communist Party. And there's, so it's, it's this like incredibly, you know, and yeah, it's this vast, incredibly messy aspect that's been um, of Indonesia's history that has been suppressed. So from, I can't remember when that album came out, but from 2000, maybe 2007 up until now, um, there's, there's, that's a current theme that is, uh, I wouldn't even say theme, but, you know, that's something that's constantly being explored and expressed. Um, so in my first project, um, and then before High Tension and the even the first High Tension album, the second one, Bully, so Death Beat, Bully and Purge, um, I recall uh, High Tension played at South by Southwest in like 2014, I think Bully, uh, sorry, not Bully, Death Beat, the first album. Um, so we're performing songs from that album. And um, uh, a friend of Matt Weston's uh, who attended the show, this is the first time that I'd ever experienced this because I've, you know, been performing for years and addressing the anti-communist genocide. And straight up he was like, uh, it's like, hey, that song, Without Us, were you talking about the anti-communist purge in 1965? And I was like, whoa. Um, okay. And he hadn't, he hadn't listened to like the recorded version, but he had a really incredible knowledge of um, the, that particular era in history called war, um, 1965, 1966 in um, Indonesia. Obviously there's like parallels in um, South America as well. And he happened to be, um, yeah, very knowledgeable on the topic and had, um, he played in bands as well, but, uh, he also, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of the radio. The it's like an independent um, independent radio in in LA, and they've been around for decades. But they, um, yeah. So so anyway, that was um, that was particularly like exciting for me. Like I felt really heard. <laughs> Because previously until then, um, you know, I, I hadn't, I, I wasn't being explicit at all in, 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 and, and that was a, that was also a very, that lack of explicity, explicit, sorry, English is my second language. Is that, is that a word? Explicitness? Uh, explicitness, I, would I think, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that lack of explicitness was very much in intentional as well. So yeah, not just in the delivery, but 
um, yeah, in, in the way that the lyrics were composed too. Um, and this is the case for the songs on Bully? You mean like Mass Graves? Almost like every song. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's interesting you say that because, I mean, I did think that um, maybe because of my familiarity with that historical context that um, the songs of Purge were kind of more directly tackling the events tied to, you know, the 65-66 communist uh, purge that marked the transition to the New Order regime. Um is you know is that what you intended like did you intend to be more direct about it um I didn't intentionally mean to be more direct about it but there were a lot of revelations that happened in the process of making purge um and it was also you know like I guess I had dabbled in addressing them in the previous three albums that I felt that it was time and that there was there was so much more that I needed to um, write about. And that was also, you know, leading up to writing for Purge, I'd also um, had been, you know, traveling, traveling a lot to Indonesia. I sort of started, I started like an oral history project and, and gathered a lot of a lot of stories. And, you know, my, my main concern was that a lot of the survivors um, or people that still remember what happened in that era, you know, they, they don't have that much time left, you mm. know, and, and let alone recalling these, like, memories. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, you know, like, throughout this process, I also met um, there's this incredible collective called 1965, uh, which means 1965 every day. And, you know, that's a co- collective of poets and um, academics, visual artists, um, multimedia artists, writers. And, you know, they, you know, the, the, the whole purpose of 1965 every day was to share a story about 1965 every day. And the song Ghost to Ghost uh, is a direct inspiration from um, their practice of Dari Hantu Ka Hantu is how they describe like keeping these memories alive so they're mm. not forgotten. And, you know, I guess like indirectly, that's what I'd sort of done for myself over the past um de- decade 15 years that uh, yeah close to yeah for the past 15 years and gathering as much informa- information as I can and um you know documenting these stories I said and initially just for myself so I guess you know and an, a, a lot of these factors and these like breakthroughs in information because it was so difficult to find any information um 15 years ago that I guess just organically um, that that became a really important th- yeah it became a really important um, thing even more even more profoundly to to yeah to start um, reconciling. Do you hope fans use your lyrics as kind of a jumping point to learn more about this? Because we did notice that uh, you know in, in reading the lyrics for a lot of songs, we did see these themes kind of coming up, and you know Jess especially was able to make the kind of connections you're talking about. But we also noted that um, there's lines like red, white, shame, which we assumed references the Indonesian flag, but there's no like specific identification of Suharto, no specific mention of like military dictatorship. 
Uh, is there an intention in keeping things a bit vague or broad or uh, like what would have happened if it was it was explicit or kind of what was the artistic thinking in, in the framing that you chose to investigate these? I definitely think in music, you know, it's up to the participant, like the whether you're like a listener um, to be able to interpret things for yourself. And mm-hmm. I don't feel like that it's my role as um, the performer to give a lecture <laughs> or tell people, you know, or to be like overly explicit with mm-hmm. things. And, you know, maybe that's a stylistic uh, choice as well, because, you know, you, you, you want, you know, stylistically, you want the lyrical content to fit with the spirit of, you know, the riffs and, and you know, the, the song as a whole. So sometimes, I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't like to be overly explicit in my lyrics. Um, and, but to, to me, to, I mean, to me, it makes sense. Right. <laughs> to, to me, it's, it's, um, I guess it's somewhat explicit, but um, I don't think that I, I don't, I don't need to say, um, I don't need to say Sahato's name to know mm. that there is a, you know, there is this kind of like overwhelming um, repulsion. It's better that I, you know, keep his name out of it because it's not even just particularly about what he did um, or his legacy, but it's everything that that era represented and how that has impacted um, modern day Indonesia. But in general, like red, white shame is like, it's cap, you know, it's like, a repulsion against capitalism, mm. you know, in, 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 in my mind. And it's sort of this sort of like grieving process of, of like, you know, like I, I grew up, um, I grew up as, as, as a Muslim and, um, you know, I learned Arabic the same time as I learned the alphabet. And one of the things like, I remember like, you know, when you're learning about the levels of hell, um, so, you know, that, that first line of being really descriptive in the forms of torture that was happening was very much like kind of bringing in, you know, um, that mind's eye into like standing in, you know, one of hell's deeper, you know, deeper levels and what you would do at that point and how, how, how that, I guess, made you feel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay. Mm. What about like, uh, you have some songs that talk about the Australian context as well, right? Like, again, I could be misinterpreting, but um, Lucky Country Part 2, for instance. I, I oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what um, I guess, when do you, is, is it a different process? Like, what kind of inspired you to to, revis- to visit kind of Australia as a topic? Um, well, I guess it feels, int- I mean, you know, it feels intrinsic to me because I'm an immigrant mm. and um, living on stolen land, um, there's a lot of yeah there's there's a lot to unravel in that experience of of um yeah you know just just those those two things and I guess lucky country is about like um you know the process of um assimilating and um uh I actually haven't listened to that song for quite some time but um I guess yeah I guess it's sort of like a a a brief sort of um address of you know that sort of experience of 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 coming to Australia like not not just for myself like not just my personal experience as an immigrant but um you know the way that 
this country take um, treats asylum seekers and, and and refugees. So I guess it's just sort of like yeah, sort of a brief kind of uh, address on 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 this kind of iron. I, irony. I'm actually really happy because that was that was my guess on what it was about. <laughs> well done. I think I got that one. I completely <laughs> tried to, butchered, tried I completely to give it away the in the one, title. But, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like the 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 themes you're talking about that I, I, I like I completely butchered the um uh, the previous one, so I'm glad I got that one right. <laughs> this should be a game show. Yeah. <laughs> Would this song be about? And it's yeah. like um it's like that. Would I lie to you format? You know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Could be good. Good idea. Next time, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. We're now we're not a podcast. We're a game show now. <laughs> um, well, if we can talk about like Bully and Purge together, um, it seems like the lyrical content of songs off both albums like seem very relevant to your own kind of personal struggles, and we I suppose we could even say trauma in the case of the uh, sixty five sixty six killings. Um, do you think that um, there's something about metal music that makes it more like of a suitable medium for working through like difficulties and trauma? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's. I mean, for me personally, it's those multiple forms of abstraction um, because, you know, like I, I grew up in Indonesia where we were, it was sort of like there was this fear sort of instilled if we um, spoke out against the government. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I remember one of the earliest memories is like the, you know, um, this woman that was kidnapped because she protested and she was, you know, jailed for, you know, she went missing. And obviously the history um, is right there to show you that writers and thinkers that spoke out um, were eliminated and they went missing and um, or you couldn't access their works like Pramudyan and Tatur and Wijituko, uh, like, you know, um, Pramudya is like one of the, you know, like I, I just think it's such a missed opportunity. It's such a like, you know, if I had access to his writings when I was a teenager, I almost like, you know, I always envision what how that would influence me in in those like it would have been so helpful. Um, you know, it was such it's like, it was such a vital tool for any young Indonesian person to to be able to like immerse themselves in. So um, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is like the um, for me personally, being able to um, address these topics that would have gotten me in trouble have had I been in Indonesia or maybe people didn't understand what, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's like actually fine now. But for many, many years, that was just this kind of like um, this fear of like, getting in trouble or this Mm. fear of like um, there was always like um, this sense of like you need to be apolitical to keep yourself safe and you know look at what happens to the people that rebel or they're they're, you know it 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 took it took a little while to um, unlearn that um, influence and also I guess when you sort of like getting back to like expressing your yourself a bit more freely um, from a political sense it's you know and you're carrying this like oh don't say anything that's gonna like put anybody you know in in danger it's like actually even talking about 1965 still has implications there's still 
it's still not a, a you know it's just not something that you can easily talk about without any sort of challenges um they're still you know people are still getting like conferences are getting shut down when they you know when writers and thinkers are trying to get together to address 1965 so you know, there's, you know, there's still this stigma that's like a lot of um, 1965 um, survivors are getting excluded from society. And, you know, like even, even the thought of like, um, you know, in my like oral history interviews, I found out that, and, you know, and I did some extra research after like um, collecting the first-hand stories of this exclusion from community and from being community leaders or having any sort of public influence. There, there was a list of um, occupations that 1965 survivors and their children and grandchildren couldn't participate in if they had any sort of affiliation with the Indonesian Communist Party. Like, you couldn't be a teacher, you couldn't work for the public service, couldn't work for the army, you couldn't be... Um, you know, the head of your neighbourhood. You couldn't even be a shadow puppet master, a dalang, because, you know, they, they're they considered to have such public influence. So I think that's a really interesting sort of, like, and this was so successfully executed. Um, it was in government forms, you know. So one of the stories that really resonated with me was, a person that I interviewed recalled their mother, their mother's hand would shake every time they had to tick a box on a government form to indicate whether or not they had any affiliation with the, their family had any affiliation with the Indonesian Communist Party. And because they, you know, she would have to lie. And I didn't realise it was to the extent of like the bureaucracy um, and, you know, you speak to people now who might have lied their whole lives and they're still afraid. We noticed in this kind of exploration of, of fear and trauma, uh, a, a theme that I guess I'm not sure a theme, but a motif, an image that comes up a lot, especially on Purge, uh, is graves or burial. Uh, you have lines like bury me deep, hot, raw and red and ghost to ghost. Uh, you cannot lay to rest as long as fear is your guest on Ular. Uh, I lay decayed, fresh, uh, flesh scraped clean on rise. Uh, is there a reason that this kind of image of, of somebody being put to rest or being buried uh, keeps coming up in your lyrics? Is it something you're aware of? Or is it something that has kind of distinct purposes depending on the song that you're um, writing? So I just... I don't know. Your question just really got me there. We can, we <laughs> Take can skip your time. it if it's. We can, if it's, yeah. If you don't yeah. want to discuss it, it's totally um, fine. We can skip. Sorry about that. I don't. No, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> like we should have said. Yeah. At, yeah, we should have said at the beginning of the interview. Like, if there's any questions that we ask that you're not comfortable answering, like please tell us. We're happy to move to something else. And, you know, we don't want you to be. Yeah. Oh, uncomfortable. Just, oh no. Um, I wasn't uncomfortable. I was just like sometimes. Um, I, I don't. I don't cry often in interviews. <laughs> thankfully <laughs> but sometimes something would just like kind of strike a um yeah um might just feel a bit triggered or something but um yeah of course mm. so I guess um in terms of the motif as you um had described it's it's difficult to know where to start but maybe the essence is that one of the most dehumanizing things you can do is 
take away like that, you know, take take away a family's right to 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 um, you know say goodbye to their loved ones or bury their loved ones properly and you know follow the the proper ritual to um, bury someone. And I guess in during 1965 to 1966, the, the 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 amount of people that were killed was you know it was so vast you know they estimate between um, 600,000 to a million people and more recently um, I was part of a symposium and this artist Tintin Woolia um, had this had this sort of uh, I guess a game that she um, led with the rest of the um, participants. And it was about like kind of piecing together memories. And one of the memories that was shared was um, a, a, a woman had witnessed the slayings of hundreds of people. Um, so she, judging from maybe her age, maybe she would have been only a teenager. And it happened in the centre of, uh, in Kabun Raya Bogor, which is the Bogor Botanical Gardens. And I had been there as a child and all, always felt a bit like, you know, it was just a very like cold, I mean, Bogor is much colder than the rest of Jakarta, but it always felt cold and unsettling. And when she, when she described that and she, she basically said that she had witnessed hundreds of people um, being slaughtered and the fish pond that was in the centre of the garden became their gravesite. And this was like, you know, hundreds of people in the one place. And so I guess like uh, this sort of like, with ghost to ghost, it was, um, you know, I guess the, the realm that I had entered is like what, you know, I guess it, it's trying to address, you know, these, these, these missed opportunities, these like every, like every person there has like a family and they, have you know un you know just unwittingly been so dehumanized in this process of you know how they died, and um, and you know I often think about like uh, I guess when you're being buried in the ground and how that sort of makes you um, you know return to earth essentially and just be a part of um, earth again um yeah I guess that was sort of like the significance of addressing the you know deeply dehumanizing aspect of of these um grave sites so yeah thank you for explaining that um an interesting kind of pattern that I observed like just looking across the two albums was that uh, you know whilst bully features about like 23 instances of the pronoun I uh, appearing across like five songs in the album, Purge has only five instances of I. Instead, oh. <laughs> there are considerably more instances of we, so about 19. 
Um, was the switch to we in place of I like a conscious component of the writing about these like kind of, as you say, like very significant large scale historical events that have impacted an enormous number of people? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think um, perhaps the approach feels more collective and that, um, you know, and and it's not something that's unique to my personal experience. So um, I guess there was uh, an intention there with removing it from, um, you know, from myself, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, like, do you view yourself then as like a component of this larger we category, like the collective of people who have this connection to uh the killings yes absolutely I think that you know I think that um you know it's not even geographically bound to um Indonesia because this occurred in so many other places around the world yeah for sure One- so I th- yeah I think that it, it, it's 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 difficult to comprehend how I think it's difficult to comprehend how these events could have happened and it's even more of an insult to injury that that history has been suppressed and even to this day is not acknowledged by everybody Mm. um, especially the Indonesian government and and I think it's also important that um these stories are told from, you know, these these stories are ours to, to tell, like, or these memories are ours to uphold because it, it's, yeah, it's such a potent part of, you know, where we are at present. And it, it, it does really, like, irk me when, um, for example, the Joshua Oppenheimer films, Um, around the 19s, you know, the act of killing and the one after that. I, uh, it just, you know, it infuriated a lot of Indonesians because it was such an unethical way to address um, these events and it was presented without nuance and, you know, especially in the first one, and it was just told through such a like it was just it was just told through the like like a like a colonial lens i guess like i i don't know for lack of a better term i actually hate talking about it cuz it was just so frustrating to mm-hmm. see that and um and actually the impact the like impact of his him doing these documentaries makes it really difficult for other like thinkers, academics, document, um, you know, documentary filmmakers and artists to tell the story of 1965, you know, from 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 an Indonesian perspective. So anyway. <laughs> yeah. mm. I feel bad because like our, our, our next question kind of doesn't have is, is we're, we're doing some pretty, you know, deep, interesting, heavy content here. And our next question is just, just kind of a framing one. Um, so apologies for the really poor transition here. Uh, but 
in general, in the way that you've approached kind of these stories and, and all the stories you tell in, in your lyrics, uh, we noticed that there's a, a bit of a trend towards very straightforward and direct language. Uh, we mentioned Red White Shame as a song, but it has lyrics like, if I met you in hell, uh, would I join in? Would I partake in this ritual of sin? That includes vocabulary that you know would uh, you could hear in kind of day-to-day -day life. Um, and throughout Bully and Purge, there are very rarely words that are more than two syllables long. And, and of course, the album titles are also quite punchy. You know, one word, very, very kind of strong, impactful terms. Um, are you conscious of this pattern? Like, did you intend to or, or have you consciously avoided kind of the, you know, uh, four syllable words that are stereotypical of certain types of metal? Or is it just something that kind of happened as you found yourself exploring these various uh, the themes that you've uh, been so kind to share with us so far? Um, I definitely didn't make a con uh, conscious decision to omit <laughs> too many syllables. Um, but I guess as I, as I sort of vaguely explained before, um, I guess it's just what lyrical content shows themselves. And I guess my priority is that it's fitting with the rest of the music and that could be in the in the amount of syllables, but also um, like literally the shape of the mouth as it's projected. Um, so particular tones, particular, particular vowels will get you deeper tones and so forth. So I guess um, a, a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of the lyrical components, yeah, has, has been fairly secondary. Um, and I don't, I don't think that it's not like a priority for me to, um, to be, to be like overly like eloquent in, in the lyrical components, because the main purpose of um, the execution of these songs is that vocally um, it carries the spirit of, you know, everything else, like the content. So I think, you know, like the, the music is language in itself. So there's not this kind of like unnecessary um, intervention with lyrical content that's really needed. Just sorry, I'm, I'm going to toss this question to you because I will not pronounce it right. <laughs> One thing I did notice on the, um, when I was looking at the titles um, from Purge is that although, you know, everything we've talked about so far has been in English, uh, there is one very notable Indonesian title among the tracks on Purge, which is Ular. So I was wondering, why did you decide to use an Indonesian title for this particular song? And it means snake for those playing at home. I think it was just sort of like, oh my gosh. So I don't know if a lot of bands have this as well, but usually up until like you're printing the vinyl, um, it's all working titles, right? And they're just silliest working titles. So sometimes like finding the title can be, you know, like, you know, it's at the final step. And I also like to be, you know, like, I think it's important that the rest of the members also like those titles. Like, so it's not just about like me going, this is the title and being really, you know, pedantic about that. So I did choose Ular because the, you know, it's in line with the, with the, with the theme of, um, I shouldn't say theme, but it's in line with the spirit of the album. And um, I guess it's significance, which I also um, kind of was a really coincidental, um, was that 
this one's not so coincidental, but there was uh, there was a there was a river that was described as uh, Sungai Ular. Well, I can't I can't I can't recall exactly the exact name that and this this was a this was a river where the where a lot of um, the bodies were disposed mm. and um, ni- the year 1965 so that you know 1965 1966 was also um, in the Chinese um, calendar um, I don't have any Chinese heritage but you know, um, there's there's a lot of um, Pranakan um, influence and culture in Indonesia, of course, and um, so that was also the year of the snake in the in the mm. in the lunar calendar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. I think it was even in the element of metal. So I think it was the year of the metal snake. I have to mm. double check. Oh, that's kind yeah. of interesting. Yeah, nice little yeah. metal. Uh, and and the 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 snake on the cover of purge mm-hmm. that was also coincidental oh. so that all sort of like i don't know it was like it was meant to be or something <laughs> yeah for sure mm. Mm. one other little uh, choice you made that is kind of surprising it's kind of surprising because we are an extreme metal podcast but we we haven't talked to many people that have like any swearing in their lyrics and you have a little bit um, most of it is there's nothing on purge. There's no swear words whatsoever. Uh, but bully does have some swear words scattered throughout most prominently on the title track, which has things like uh, shit on your game. Hear the girls <laughs> fucking talk shit, uh, which, you know, pretty, uh, straightforward example. Um, I guess for you, what is the value of, of curse words, quote unquote, in, in lyrics? Um, I think for that album, it sort of did the job in delivering a particular attitude, Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, but really that is the purpose. But you know what? Having explicit lyrics, like explicit lyrics in your, you know, when you have that sticker, it actually makes it really difficult for broadcast. Um, I remember when we were contacted by the BBC and they wanted to play one of um, a song from the um, the first album and they asked us, even though you couldn't hear it in the in the song itself, they asked us for the lyrics, and they said, oh, "We can't play this one because <laughs> um, of this word." Mm. And then and that sort of made me think. It's like, oh, you know, it's it's this is like really impractical. Mm-hmm. Um, and often, you know, over the years, I realized like you don't need you don't need um, curse words to to make an impact mm-hmm. and so and that's is that the reason why you've kind of like shied away from the use of like swearing on purge and presumably more recent work yeah I think it's it's like sort of um I guess like the, the first two high tension albums had a bit more of a like punk spirit and mm. you know like you know you can, you can get away with um you know being really abrasive in in that context um but I guess you know um by the time yeah I I also I was like really I felt like the the it was just it was just I felt like a totally different sphere um Mm -hmm. entering into the third album and there was there was a real a, a different sense in the in the writing approach that 
felt, you know, a bit more vast and, um, yeah, bigger than my initial approach to writing, which was, you know, a bit more personal and internal. And this is sort of more sort of like expansive and um, with this sort of collective mindset that it felt like it wasn't necessary. And in fact, it would feel like it was a bit dishonorable or something. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, of course, we also want to talk about your lyrics from your other project, uh, Renoir. Uh, you're the first band that we've talked to, at least on the podcast, that uses Indonesian languages, uh, including uh, Indonesian and Basakawi, so old Javanese, mm-hmm. uh, in the lyrics. Um, so we wanted to uh, ask what it's like writing metal lyrics um, in Indonesian and uh, old Javanese and, um, you know, what the process is like in comparison to, you know, the process of writing lyrics in English. Absolutely. So English is my second language. I um, only learned how to speak English when I was eight. And I never learned how to speak Javanese, even though both my parents are from central Java. Um, You know, recently I found, you know, and I didn't know this about Bahasa Indonesia. So my first language is lingua franca. So it's not even a pure language. And I felt a bit gypped, to be honest, Um, (laughs) because, well, it's, it's, I think it's quite profound because old languages, I feel, is sort of this portal to old knowledge and power. And there's so much, there's so much to be like, there's so much of it that I don't know and I never got to fully study it and speak it growing up that, um, you know, studying it um, on my own terms in my 30s is, you know, feels feels like I'm connecting back to that ancestral lineage or um, I want to know more about the antecedent conditions of, you know, like um, my heritage, I guess. So, um, and I guess what inspired me is, um, you know, living on unceded Wurundjeri country, we have this sort of lack of knowledge of of country and we have, um, we have a lack, you know, even for a lot of like, um, Wurundjeri people that are Woiwurrung or Bunwurrung, it's actually really difficult to access, um, you know, learning these languages as well. Um, but they hold so much knowledge and so much stories and wisdom and all of these, you know, like really important aspects in terms of understanding um, your culture, your history um, and so forth. So I... I think it was this year um, I met Auntie, um, so Nawi Carolyn Briggs, who is a Boon um elder. And um, Nawi Carolyn did a very, um, very intimate welcome to country. This is through um, a, um, a friend of mine who is an artist, their name's Bon Mott. And that was like a really generous kind of like being invited to to hear Auntie uh, to hear Nawi Carolyn um, welcome us to country, and we ha- and um, so uh, she's been she had 
I think she's just completed her thesis on language. And one thing that really resonated with me was I think she was basically telling a story of like her supervisor saying, you should have written this in Sanskrit or Arabic because, you know, why did you write it in English in terms of um, the correct pronunciation of the um, Bunwarung language? And that sort of made me think, I was like, oh, you know, now we, um, Carolyn, I, Auntie Carolyn, I, you know, I actually learned, um, Arab, you know, I learned how to write and speak Arabic at the same time as I was learning Bahasa Indonesia and, um, and also because I was studying um, Bahasa Kawi from, you know, the like the Sanskrit influence and all of this stuff. So it just sort of made me think about like old languages and why it's so important to like have this kind of um, comprehension. And also it's like really fascinating. <laughs> um, and I guess to properly answer your question, um, Jess, uh, what's it like to sing and write in these languages? So for Bahasa Indonesia um, and Bahasa Kawi, even though, you know, I never spoke Bahasa Kawi and not many, like, I mean, unless you're from the Kraton or um, <laughs> don't really, <laughs> many, you won't be able to find many, many people even in, in Java nowadays, but unless you're a, like a Bawang or something, um, like a shaman. But um, I found it was felt more natural to use my voice with how this, how these languages sound. And um, from like an improvisation um, approach as well, because I guess when you, if, if, you've, if you've ever sort of like tried to completely improvise, for me, um, the, the times that I've performed at Make It Up Club or have done improvised performances, I'm improvising in Bahasa Indonesia um, or the, um, the, the tones and the vowels and the, and the r, it's like, you know, the rolling of the R's in particular words actually sounds so much more brutal and satisfying when it's executed in an extreme metal sense. So there's a lot of, I guess, like writing and, but particularly performing in Bahasa Indonesia and Bahasa Kawi is that it's, it's almost like I had a spectrum of colours to, you know, to use in my vocal practice and now it's like really expanded, you know, there's so many more possibilities and um, but it's what can be achieved in terms of like the rolling of the R's, like the amount of O's and the, um yeah, the, 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 the tonal kind of possibilities and textures is, um, is a lot richer, I guess. That's really interesting because, like, I, um, you know, when listening to the album, I obviously didn't understand, I don't know any of the words or anything like that, but the sounds you're talking about, like, I was very, very um, noticed, like, I'm very fixated on how just brutal it sounded. Like, I didn't know if you were pronouncing things, quote unquote, correctly or if you'd adjusted it to be more heavy, but there's just kind of like a, a, a growling heaviness to like everything you were saying on every track uh that I, I think comes through just kind of this this 
it, it just sounds like there's a, a feeling of like anger, but also just kind of this overwhelming, like crushing, like I want to say like a cursed kind of <laughs> feeling that I got out of it. Um, I'd like is 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 the pronunciation quote unquote you know normal or is or is it adjusted to kind of make it that kind of just produce that feel? I would say that I didn't adjust uh, the pronunciation of things. Mm-hmm. Um, as so, R- Rama said something really interesting um, when we were like working on like the gamelan stuff. He's like, yeah, but Indonesian just sounds brutal in general. Like, <laughs> like he said, perpustakaan. Perpustakaan is like library, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it just sounds so much more like grand and like yeah. heavy. <laughs> yeah, library. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. So, so there are particular words that lens like is more leaning to this heavy specter. Um and it just, yeah, it just, I guess it's like, uh, it, it, dep- it depends on the word, but I wasn't changing the pronunciation of things. And in fact, I would say that a lot of the words are still pretty legible mm-hmm. um, because I was able to enunciate particular words mm. a bit more than sort of like, it was, you know, it's still, um, it's still abrasive and there's, still that form of abstraction but maybe for um an indonesian you know someone that um can speak indonesian maybe they'll be able and loves extreme metal i think they would be able to figure it out did you reference or like listen to any other uh because for people who don't know like indonesia does have a pretty active metal scene especially a grindcore um did you listen to or reference what other indonesian artists were doing or did you kind of just explore this on your own I I do I, I I have a lot of um I'd love a lot of Indonesian metal um and but the metal bands that I like from Indonesia are um use English in their lyrics most of the time yeah um and I didn't you know I didn't listen to, apart from Senyawa, because, um, you know, their album Sujud was definitely one of my favourites, I didn't, and, you know, uh, Ruli doesn't sing in that kind of extreme metal style, but his voice is so heavy and rich and nuanced and um, tactile, like all those descriptions of, like, it's like uh, there's, like, a whole universe in, in, in his voice. And he does sing in Bahasa Indonesia, but... Um, I guess I was, you know, um, I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to be, um, directly influenced obviously, but, um, I guess that, that was, I think in the, in the context of, um, performing in the different language, um, that, that is in English, um, you know, felt like a new revelation because previously, I guess, like in the process of assimilation and um, being an immigrant, um, I worked so hard to learn how to speak English and to lose my accent and, you know, to, um, you know, like with the English language also, you know, from... um, 
an immigrant's experience comes like a sense of belonging and you know things are much easier um when you can speak English and so forth. So there was many, many years of, um, you know, abandoning my first language. I, and I guess like perhaps that could be the same for like a lot of uh, like Indonesian um, artists because they, they, you know, like even though metal is so fertile and it has always been a popular genre in Indonesia, and it's informed by so many different factors, maybe there is still this sense of like the songs have to be performed in English to fit within the genre perhaps. But I mean, not, I mean, not, not all Indonesian, you know, metal acts are performing their songs in, um, in, in English. Like I'm, I'm noticing a lot more, um, I'm definitely noticing, um, after we had written the album, I sort of did a bit more research about, um, you know, seeing what's, because I haven't lived back in Indonesia for many, many years. And it's really good. It's really good when um, artists can take that sort of agency and, you know, work with what they've got. Um, I think it's so much more powerful. And also, like, in terms of, like, these, like, parameters of style and, in extreme metal, you actually, if, if you're an Indonesian artist, or if you, you know, if you if you grew up in Indonesia, you don't actually have to look outside of your country to to be so metal. It's so metal. Mm, for sure. Mm. Definitely. And certainly your comments are certainly reflected in a lot of the interviews I've done with Indonesian uh, metal musicians who have you know, said that like they did feel pressure to write in English in order to connect with the international scene. Um, but that, yeah, as you said as well, there, there, there were certainly some that I spoke to that, um, you know, viewed using um, Indonesian languages, even older Indonesian languages, like um, I don't know how familiar we are with Jasad. Oh, um, Jasad, yeah. Yeah, Jasad, yeah. Yeah, I spoke to one so Jasad. Yeah, they're brilliant. And, you know, like um, for those that don't know, um, they write a lot in Indonesian, but also Bahasa Sunda and Bahasa mm. Sunda Kuno. Um, yeah. Like so Sundanese and old Sundanese. Um, and they draw a lot, um, you know, it's very similar to yourself on like traditional um, uh, scripts-y, like, um, mm. you know, scripts and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. I, I I love that band Jasad. So yeah. um, then they have that like really incredible side project that Rama showed me, um, Rama, who's in Rinoat and Kilat, um, where it's called Karinding Attack, and they it's with the Karinding instrument. But the other thing that um, is amazing about Dasad is um, Man, he performs with the totopong, like the, um, the scarf, and he's just chain smoking the whole time. It's <laughs> the most Indonesian metal thing if um if you know we were to kind of like paint a picture of this like quintessential um intersection of metal and Sundanese yeah <laughs> culture so you know that's I think I think that's incredible and imagine the impact that would make to all these sort of like emerging artists um to see someone take ownership of their culture and you know and I, I think I think it is this, you know, like it is this like um, sense of belonging or like being acknowledged by the international scene that is, I think, a lot of 
a lot of like Indonesians artists is like, oh yeah, no, we don't have to like appease anyone, you know? Mm. Yeah. And it's it's a sick scene. Like, you know, I feel like you haven't really um, I don't know, I I hope I'm not being biased here, but I feel like you haven't lived as a heavy, heavy music fan unless you've been to a show in like in Indonesia, because it's like insane. <laughs> It's definitely on the list as soon as we can go there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose something else we should um, talk about, as you've already mentioned it, was, uh, you know, the influence of gamelan notation. Um, because, uh, yeah, of course, like for those that don't know, gamelan notation draws on traditions of like ensemble music in Indonesia. Um, but it is quite an unusual element to see featured in metal music. So, uh, yeah, we're wondering, was it difficult to incorporate like these styles, um, you know, and, and how did this impact your lyric writing? So um, I, I, one of the most difficult things was to actually have access to the gamelan, uh, to gamelan full stop in Melbourne. Um, even in Indonesia, like, uh, you know, you have to, not anyone can just like whip up a gamelan. You have to come from like a bloodline and um, it depends on like where the, um, you, you can't just assemble like gamelan from, you know, this village in Java and that village in Java and expect for it to work because they're all sort of like, it's like this, you know, it has been created specifically for that region and, you know, is delivered as this like ensemble kind of thing. So that was the, that was the most challenging aspect was actually being able to, um, yeah, get a hold of the gamelan instruments. And, um, but when we, when it did finally happen, which felt, you know, pretty magical, um, it was, it was so incredible to be like, um, to, to write with gamelan because the resonance, um, like the sonic resonance of each instrument, like the gong and, um, uh, we use Balinese gamelan, so gangsa, uh, gongvide, um, the pomade, like all of those things. Like you know, it's it's a it's a resonance that travels through your body. And if you look at the history of gamelan and why it was created, you know, like the gongvide was the first instrument to be created, and the purpose was so you know mere mortals could communicate to the gods. And it evolved because we wanted to articulate our message. So it was, you know, starting with the gonga de and then another, another instrument and another thing. And it's something that has to be played together. So using the instruments and um, using gamelan and having that knowledge of its significance to um, Balinese culture and Javanese culture and its importance in storytelling, whether it was with wayang or with traditional dance. Um, you know, even just, even just having that kind of presence was particularly influential in the writing process. So, but because we didn't, you know, we, we, we were approaching it from an experimental sense, uh, we, you know, 
I guess we, we were making things that didn't involve like every single gamelan player. So it really stripped back the composition and, um, and in terms of like the articulation, say if like, I don't know the way you put it, like if, um, if a whole ensemble could communicate like, you know, a thesis to the gods, we were merely sort of like, you know, um, delivering something abstract and um, not hyper articulated. <laughs> so, yeah, so, but, but I think um, for us, we also wanted, you know, we, we had like a, we had a particular, we have the, the song Nagaloka. So that composition was based on um, the, the way like in Balinese gamelan, there's almost like, it's almost like a blast beat, but it's using like the fast syncopation of cheng cheng, which is the little um, symbols and um, other, other aspects of the gamelan that's just played really fast. So we sort of approached it in that sense, like what if instead of, you know, doing like a black metal double kick blast beat, we 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 applied that with gamelan and also with suling, like the suling is often, um, the bamboo flute is often like used in lieu of a voice. So then, you know, it's, I guess it's just sort of like experimenting those, um, those ideas of um, that, is informed by traditional practice and traditional knowledge, but you know, experimenting, yeah, experimenting with them, and 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 I I I didn't actually feel that we had to try too hard to make things feel heavy because we use a lot of the gong and that's like literally the heaviest thing that you could feel. It's you know, it's it 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 does. I think what we struggled with was like capturing it on recording on, on, you know, because it's just one of those things where it's just an instrument where you need to be present. And I guess like maybe um, it would be the same of like feeling, feeling the resonance of a live show mm -hmm. through, through amplifiers and, and, you know, feeling the bottom end, like travel through your body. Right. Um, but, you know, this is, this is an, ancient instrument that holds so much resonance it's actually yeah it's it's pretty gnarly it's it's such a special um yeah it's a, it's a it's a special experience was there anything like i i guess like obviously there, there's all this overlap that you're mentioning in terms of sound like you know uh, blast beats kind of existing in there but was there any initial clash even just in your in your brain at all like uh taking something localized and traditional and and mixing it with something that is i guess quite international and uh you know ha has actually traditionally opposed itself or been viewed as opposed to uh tradition and uh you know the old way or did it just kind of work slip in together so there, there were there were times when like you know like i had written this kind of like not set of rules but I had, a, I had like a list of um, ideas to explore. And one of them was like adapting the tuning of the guitar to like Pelog or Slendro, which is the way that the gamelan, like the pentatonic scale, for example. 
but that idea like when we tried that was like yeah no that doesn't work it's just you know what I mean so you kind of you just have to go through the process of um so that that was probably one example but then other examples like some things just just worked I guess and I think that um yeah I guess the, the way I like could easily like could describe it is like simultaneous feelings of discovery but also familiarity because for Rama for Rama and I he grew up learning gamelan from his father who was a pamade the like lead um player and they even though he wasn't born in Bali he he's he grew up with that I grew up learning traditional dance and so all of all of the like the sounds of the gamelan even though um they you know I'd, I'd never played you know I never experimented with gamelan until until last last year it it just you know it it feels natural because it's sort of like what I had grown up with I, I, I guess but you know not every not and not every as I said not every idea worked but um, I guess it was that combination of the familiarity with gamelan itself, whether or not that was direct as a as a performer or just as a um, you know someone like me who led traditional dance to gamelan, but did have never played gamelan. In fact, I remember learning gamelan when I was a child, and the um, and the and the teacher was like, "You're no good at gamelan." So that was <laughs> that really like turned me off. Um, but what he didn't know was that you can you can be shit um, when you start something new. Um, so I wish I'd I didn't um, didn't take it to heart his comment. But um, so you're actually you're always shit when you start something new. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And actually, Rama Rama um, is is a is a drum teacher. So he has this like patience, like no one else. And anytime I would be like, no, nah, I can't do this. He'd be like, no, 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 do it this way. Or like um, everybody has natural rhythm and, you know, very encouraging stuff. So I think, I think that was, um, I think, I think the actual process of um, learning something for yourself was, was, was really important. But, um, and Mike, um, Mike Deslons, who produced, the Renoir album it was actually really good to have someone that didn't have this like innate connection already because it was going to be such a central part of of Renoir and he yeah I guess he he also had like his own vision of you know what what it could be and um actually he describes it really well it's like because he makes he he so he produces um he produ he produces bands for a living and and is a sound engineer he's incredibly talented at that but he's also an incredible songwriter um he plays another band called Ilva um which I'm a big fan of and you know he he's taught me a lot about um being methodical and being really kind of disciplined in in writing and he's 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 basically said like over time things just reveal themselves like when you get to that that part of the process things will eventually reveal themselves so like trusting in that and also because you know having two other people collaborating with like it it, it was a really um enriching experience for me because we all trusted each other in 
our contribution to the to to the work. We noticed some other like kind of traditional elements, uh, like use of references to terms for traditional weaponry, uh, traditional like evil spirits, uh, temples, um, the term for the first month of the Islamic calendar, uh, like witch doctor kind of um, are these kind of terms and also just the, uh, the use of, you know, old Javis in general, all kind of fitting in the same motive that you just discussed? Uh like yeah. uh, terms that are are still contemporary Javanese, but you, you might not hear in the in day to day life, I guess. I think that um, yeah, I think it's I think it's a really fascinating um, aspect of of Javanese culture that you know, like if you had a you know when when my um, first band toured Indonesia, for example, and we toured all through Java, and each town that we went to, we engaged a pawang hujan which is, um, I don't know, I explain it to my Australian friends as like a rain repeller or, um, or a rain shaman, basically. Mm. And that was an integral part for the tour manager to include in the itineraries because it meant that for most of our shows that were um, held outdoors, we wouldn't have the burden of bad weather. So, you know, this is like a really common practice. Um, and... So, and um, as well as like the Javanese calendar of like the market days um, and the particular pairings of, of days and um, their significance, um, for example, Slasa Kliwon and Jumat Kliwon, those are particularly, so the days of the Gregorian calendar paired, if, if it's paired with the um, market day of, of, of um, the Javanese calendar, when paired together, they have like an auspicious quality to them. So that's when you perform your rituals, um, preferably at the confluence of two rivers for max, maximum potency. So like it is like, um, you know, and, and, and trying to like sort of growing up in Indonesia and like um, and my grandmother who, were, who knew a lot about Javanese ritualistic practice in her work, she was a... Um, which is, um, I feel like you can't, it, it, it's not the same when you translate it into uh, English or in a Western context, because she wasn't just a wedding coordinator or planner. Um, she, you know, were, she, you, you can only have that role if you've gone through like the process of fasting and, um, you know, you had to kind of go through a process to be able to be the person that can carry out these rituals, which, you know, um, in Javanese culture, obviously marriage is like really significant. Um, so I was, I was very interested to delve deeper into the origin of these practices that have, you know, that still exist and is still carried on. And I think particularly in um Java and Bali, um, and I haven't really spent much time in other parts of Indonesia. I think it's incredible that it's the cultural practices are still very rich. Mm -hmm. And I wondered as well, like, do you ever think about um, how your audience engages with, uh, you know, the songs of Rinoat in particular, given that I assume that the majority of your audience are probably not familiar with Indonesian and particularly Basakawi, um, you know, let alone, of course, like the culturally specific terminology we've just discussed. Um, you know, does this kind of like come into your mind at all when you're writing lyrics or, you know, is it something you just don't even think about? I really try to not humour that concern. 
mm. of mm-hmm. um because i felt i felt so compelled to 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 change the methods in mm-hmm. in 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 writing heavy music so one of one of the one of the concerns i had in my own mind was this kind of trajectory to you know being homogenous mm. um so and you know there was a lot of you know um the zeitgeist as well is sort of you know th- these talks of like de decolonization and mm-hmm. um a lot of you know a lot of kind of like buzzy words like yeah decolonization um and political identity you know um identity politics and all of these things in like in in heavy music and and being in a um you know like a, a lot of personal kind of um things as well but i guess i was interested to look at those things from um this sort of like subjective um view um but also from a very kind of personal um view of like what does that look like to me what does it look like um what are the mechanics of decolonizing metal mm. what are the mechanics mm. of um you know what do, sonically what does that sound like mm. Mm. from a language perspective you know we've been sort of like i guess because metal is like exists in this sort of like it's more prominent in western in the western context or at least like you think that it is but Mm, in the psyche and stuff yeah yeah being being Indonesian and actually experiencing what metal is there and the like the richness in history the the folklore and these ancient practices culture knowledge language like all of these things it's like it's sort of right there and I was very much interested in approaching it in that context so using Mm. being informed by um you know, by those, by those elements in, in, um, in ancient practices in, and being influenced by those elements in my heritage, addressing those antecedent qualities, I guess. So, um, but it, it was, it was definitely coming more from like this personal context. I'm not trying to, I wasn't really trying to like that, that was, yeah, that was the starting point was, you know, what I'd, I'd be interested to see what this could what this could be like how we could do it and um you know and and sort of like moving through that process it was like a you know it was a really kind of rewarding and uh nourishing process for everyone to go through not just for Rama and I but um also for Mike because um I guess I guess when you sort of like dissolve those parameters of like this is if you want to exist and succeed in this genre um this is, you know, these are the rules. This is this is where it's got to fit in. Um, I guess I think that can really suppress a lot of the potential for experimentation. Mm. So I guess just to try to kind of combine all these ideas together and and bring things uh, to a kind of a whole. Uh, what ultimately, uh, be it in in any language, in any of the genres you work in. Uh, do you feel is the you know ultimate role of lyrics and language in metal broadly, but also in your music specifically? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> Don't know if I can answer that. I I truly think that language uh, is just is in in the metal context is another component. Mm-hmm. But what I am um, hoping to discover 
is the the knowledge and wisdom that's embedded in uh, archaic languages like Bahasa Kawi, and you know they have their own set of rules. And I think I think when you can familiarize yourself or have an understanding of these different languages, especially the ancient ones, it just sort of it holds so much more potential. And there's 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 a lot to learn and understand and. I think it is just another tool, um, you know, to to re- reconcile all these sort of like complexities in um, the motives, as you um, described earlier, in the context of the genre. Does metal, for whatever reason, uh, serve as a place that's really open towards exploring these ancient languages in a way that maybe, I don't know, pop music or uh, <laughs> reggae or, I don't know, dance hall might not? I'd love to hear an old Kawi pop song. That would be cool. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, look, I think if, I don't think it's bound, it's bound to metal as a genre. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like in the, in the context of like um, pop music and, you know, other, other, other mainstream, I guess, types of music is that they, have a um they have this sort of perhaps there's more of an intention for mass appeal Mm -hmm. so i think it restricts the use of highly esoteric ancient (laughs) languages you know um but i mean yeah so i guess i guess maybe with like more um niche sub sub genres Mm. there's you know there's there's a place for everything and i think that um, I think that metal listeners, you know, they're, they're, they're drawn to the genre for a reason. And mm-hmm. I just think that for, for me, I'm just, fa- I'm fascinated. So as, as, a, as an artist, it's, it's, uh, it's something that I, I'm, I'm keen to, you know, acquire more knowledge and, and, and um, learn more and use it, use, you know, use it in my practice. But I, I, I don't know if it connects with everyone, but I, you know, just as a listener, I'd like to think that as a listener, you would, you want language to almost like the, the, the comprehension of the language needs to transcend, like, you know, all of the other, you know, it, it, it should transcend all those things. Mm. Mm. And so far, like the, the feedback is that even though, um, like even for myself, like I'm, 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 you know, um, performing in 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 a language that is not familiar to me, but somehow innately feels natural, and I feel connected to, and I and I think that 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 is the sort of like that's the sonic power of the language itself, mm. not so much the um, not so much the like literal translation of it and I and I'm 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 interested in that usage of ancient languages and what that holds in terms of the sonic power. Mm. So where can people go if they want to get uh, you know access to that sonic power and check it out? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's on Bandcamp Mm -hmm. and we'll have a um, so uh, heavy machinery records um, uh, for so for and high tension as well um, uh, is on cooking vinyl. Um, both you can access through Bandcamp. It's all on Spotify, but you know, go through Bandcamp. Um, right. Yep. 
And well, and I think there's the album, the Rinuat album Duanaga came out middle of November, but we there is a the, a delay on the vinyl. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully that comes soon. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. Cool. Yeah, well, we'll definitely put those links in the description of the episode. Um, awesome. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about all of this and giving us so much detail mm. in your responses to all of our questions, which, yeah. you know, um, aren't usual questions that you probably be posed in an average interview. So we appreciate you, you know, taking yeah. the time to go through it with mm. us. Yeah. Thank you so much for all this detail and, and this, uh, <laughs> the fascinating original experience. Um, mm. I really appreciate all the research that the both of you have done and um, the questions as well. And also listening to the podcast. I think the great thing about the, doing these like really long form comprehensive interviews is probably, I don't know if other artists have said this to you, but it's actually a really good way to, it's good practice to be able to understand your art because you mm-hmm. need to talk about mm. your practice. So I think in the process of things, it's just as useful as like writing an album, you know, like, mm. um, and also to kind of think, think about things retrospectively as well. Mm. Um, yeah. So thank mm. you very much. We have, yeah, and, I'm going to come in a few times. Well, we're always really happy yeah. to hear it because we hope that yeah. people get something of out course. of this besides just yeah. time. Having a chat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thank so, you so much. From Cheers. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for listening to Lingua Rutalica. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you stay tuned for our next episode. Before we leave, we just wanted to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Mm-hmm.